Hello and welcome to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. I'm Kelly McKercher. I'm a designer, a writer, and I use them, they pronouns. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm recording this podcast, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Ori Nation, as well as all nations across Australia. This series aims to stretch our view of human-centered design through talking with practitioners who are working beyond the double diamond, who are pushing practice. On today's podcast, I'm joined by two dear friends and fellow designers, Lauren Anseline and Ewan Black. We speak about networks for social impact, what they are, how to convene a network and what to avoid. We also speak about the role of reciprocity in design, about network weaving and about slowing down to deepen our impact. A content warning, we talk about death and end of life in this podcast. And while we talk constructively and the conversation is hopeful, the topic may be upsetting or destabilizing for some. Welcome, Ewan and Lauren, to the podcast. Can you tell us your pronouns and the land you're located on? Sure. Uh, my name's Ewan and my pronouns are he, they, and I live, work and play on Ghana lands here in Adelaide. And I'm Lauren and my pronouns are she, they, and I live, work and play on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. Fantastic. So let's start with some stories about a network that you're involved in, what the network is and maybe what it's focusing on. Sure. So this has been a long project, actually. So we've already been working on the network itself, Lauren and I, for the last three years. Um, I should probably start, actually, by just talking about what a network is. Um, we actually find the, the language or the word network can be quite confusing for some people because it conjures instantly in their head something. And we often will try and use more organic terms like an organism or an ecosystem, which conjures a slightly different picture, which is more helpful and um, in terms of what we're trying to do, which is really connect a whole ecosystem of people specifically in the end of life space. And um, that uh, project, the network was actually formed through a previous project, which was started by our colleagues, Kerry Jones and Ingrid Burkett um, with the JO and JR Wicking Trust, who funded TAXI, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, where both Lauren and I work, to understand where they could best invest their money and their funds to create better outcomes for people in end of life, uh, particularly for ageing Australians. And that piece of work... Uh, identified a number of different barriers that were getting in the way of people achieving good outcomes, mainly uh, lack of education around, um, and I guess, death or end-of-life literacy uh, in the population in terms of what are the choices that are available to people, where can you go for support, how do you navigate the system, uh, what are your values and how do they inform the kinds of choices that you want to make what kind of uh, work do you need to do in order to plan uh, for those choices to become a reality? Um, and how do you identify someone in your life who can advocate for you when, it, when you do find yourself uh, in end of life? And so there was a whole bunch of issues that uh, were identified through that project. And uh, one of the main opportunities was about 
I guess, growing and enabling a community um, of practitioners and change makers uh, from across the end of life system uh, and across Australia as a nation uh, to come together and build relationships uh, and see how or, or what collaborations might spontaneously arise from just connecting them. I'll just um, build on what Ewan has uh, just said and um, say, you know, from that report um, Ewan mentioned, we had an inkling of who those change makers might be to come together in this network. Um, it took a while for us to wrangle people together. Um, one, because, you know, they're all overcommitted to doing the good work of what they're already working on. And two, because the impact network was an entirely new concept to lots of people so that they weren't actually sure what they were getting themselves into. Um, I think, you know, we won people over in the end because, you know, this was a systemic and collaborative effort and that's what those change makers were most interested in. They were focused on that level of change. Um, and of course that wasn't an easy journey. It wasn't a clear cut way. Um, we're building this path as we go and we're, um, we're really honest with members about that. We're transparent that, you know, we, we don't know the, the whole steps as well. Um, I think it was like the third convening, you and I were like, hang on, are we doing the right thing? Is this, is this the right process that we're going through? Are we, are we leading this or are we being led? And, um, the members said to us, you know, we, we trust you and we want to be here on this exploration with you. And I think that, that really gave us the space and allowed us to actually come and be fully present and start to play and explore together. Um, and in those in those first six months, I think we were really focused on trust building and relationships and also working on um, collective systems mapping to really help people like lift up out of their day to day and see um, the conditions that were holding problems in place. Um, so that process allowed us to come down from those six, um, I think, opportunity areas from the report down to one, which was education. And um, members really aligned around that because it was a, they saw it as a critical leverage point to help uh, normalise death literacy, um, which in turn supports better choice and control at end of life. And I think over, those, over these two years we've been convening, we've, had, um, we've built this ecosystem of members that come from a diversity of experience um, and we've been capturing ideas in what we're calling a, a portfolio, although we like to call it our, our garden, um, that's growing and growing together. And um, that ecosystem of ideas has helped us to fund um, uh, a project, which is around uh, a suite of end of life games, which is um, ranges from physical cards to a digital interface, um, all educating players around end of life choices. And um, we've gotten to the point where we, we reapplied for funding recently and we were successful in getting five more years, which is huge for like this relatively new approach um, in Australia to systems change. And it's really testament, I think, you and I believe, to the, to the strength and passion of the members who have stuck with it um, to make this like a truly functional ecosystem. There's so many questions that we could ask and it strikes me that this approach that you're talking about is really quite different to a traditional human-centred design project where we might do a lot of work in a design team there might be a product or service that's being imagined or reimagined. 
at some point that might meet the types of people that you're talking about who are you know at the front line of systems who are managing systems who are funding systems and I'd I'd love to hear in a impact network like you're describing what is it that's being designed it's a really good question um and I think the the first I guess thing that you have to recognize in an impact network is you don't have control over what it is that is being designed and no individual member does. And so the first thing we were actually, I guess design is the wrong word. The first thing we were doing was actually just mapping what was uh, from all the varieties of perspectives that we saw. Um, And in doing that, we identified, I guess, places where, the diversity of people in our network were experiencing shared challenges and had mutual interest. And so the first thing we wanted to do was identify those shared challenges, identify those pockets of energy and really dive into those. So start connecting people. Oh, you've met, you've mentioned that this is a challenge for you. You mentioned that this is something that you're really interested in. And we know that this person has also said that let's just connect the two of you in a little pair. Let's see if you can have a conversation about that together and then come back to the network with something that you're interested in and an idea that we can plant in that garden that Lauren mentioned. And I guess that is how the network grows. So it's really about um, identifying commonalities between people uh, seeking to connect them uh, around that commonality and then nurturing whatever comes out of their conversations and then where appropriate saying, oh, well, you're talking about, you know, what we would call like a, an ideation process. Perhaps we can help build your capability uh, to improve the quality of the ideation conversation you're having. We might use human-centered design tools to do that. And it strikes me that in an impact network, we have to have some connection to what we're trying to do together. And that seems that that should be true for the conveners or the facilitators of the network as well as the members. And I wonder, Lauren and Ewan, if you're comfortable, if you might share what connects you to this network, this end-of-life network. I think end-of-life is something that is one of the most connective things that humans experience, you know, no matter who you are, on this planet, we we all die. We all go through this process, and um, currently, you know, there there are systems in place that don't allow people to actually have the experience they they want to have, and really go through, um, you know, a comfortable experience. You know, people I think hear uh, death or end of life, and and think of something that is very very far away. Um, but, you know, those things can happen, you know, very, very quickly. And un- it's an uncertain world at the moment, I guess, is what the point. COVID has made that quite clear. Um, and I think my connection to this work is that as a human experience, I believe that we should all have the best experience possible going through that. I think uh, for me, the I lost my brother. Um He was 27 and was in an accident and lost his life. And he was overseas at the time when that happened. And I was overseas at the time that that happened. And my parents were in uh, Scotland 
and I think the you know there was no understanding really of end of life within our family. We had lost older relatives before, and they were kind of expected, and most of those were actually quite normal occurrences of death. So, um, you know, they they actually my grandfather died at home with us, which was a really lovely experience. You know, it was actually something that we connect around and we talked openly about at the time and um, when we lost my brother that was out of the blue it was unexpected we had not really talked to each other about I guess what we would do in the case of one of us dying we just had never even considered that and so it was incredibly hard like we didn't have the words for it we didn't know how to support each other and the you know the bereavement process um, was made just incredibly hard. Um, my parents, you know, really struggled through that for seven years. They, in fact, longer than that. It's, it's, it's ongoing. It's probably, it's probably something that will never uh, leave, and nor would they want it to. It's something that they're going to, I guess, work through for the rest of their lives. Um, but I don't think it needs to be that hard. I've, you know, since then, through the network, heard stories of people who had much uh, higher levels of death literacy and were able to kind of go on a journey in the, um, in the either the lead up to their loved one dying so they could prepare fully, or because they understood what were supports were available, what complex bereavement was, uh, they then had tools and pathways to get appropriate support. Uh, which my family didn't. So I feel like that really is what drives me. It's amazing um, being part of a network where everyone has a story like that. You know, we have participants in our network who are carers, um, you know, caring for loved ones who have early onset dementia. We have um, others who have lost loved ones, uh, close friends, family. Turns out we actually had three members of our network um, who had been heavily involved on the ground during the AIDS pandemic. Um, and uh, it was through the kind of connection sections that we do at the start of every network that we started seeing these kind of personal connections to end of life. And we know that it is those personal emotional connections that we create that actually sustain the network and enable us to lean into really complex and hard discussions. Um, you know, when we have different perspectives. Mm. Thank you both for sharing your experiences. <clears throat> so it strikes me that some of this work, particularly in an area that can be triggering, upsetting can ask us as facilitators to bring forward a lot of ourselves and also ask participants to bring forth a lot of themselves into this work and acknowledging that this has been going on for a number of years and it also sounds like it will continue to go on for a number of years. Um, you've spoken about the emotional connection that keeps us going in this work. This may seem like an odd departure from such a serious topic but I wonder about the role of fun and what the role of fun is in sustaining these really long, big systemic projects. Lauren, do you want to talk about fun? We have a lot of fun. <laughs> we do have a lot of fun. <laughs> I think there's no convening that happens that doesn't include a lot of um, laughter, which is, I mean, you, you might think is um, strange coming from such a, a serious um, area that people see as in their lives. 
um, I think, you know, just focusing, as Ewan said, on this relational connection um, is is really, really important to build that trust. And I think that having fun is also based in trust so that you can sort of let loose and have a have a giggle every now and again, especially, you know, many, many of our members are in lockdown at the moment and, you know, popping up on Zoom every time. You, you do have to bring a certain amount of energy and enjoy in, into the room just to, yeah, get through those sticky moments. I think there's a really, really important part of making things fun as well. Um, you know, there's so much um, dark stuff that you could get into in this space and there are so many poor outcomes experienced and you can get really kind of caught up uh, in our kind of natural human negativity bias to just focus on all of that. And I think what happens when we work from that place when we're driven and motivated by the bad things, uh, we end up creating things that can be quite dark. Um, and I think there's something really important about bringing light and life into the kind of dark corners of the system um, and just watching how that can create, like something different can really emerge when you do something from uh, a lighthearted perspective. And that really ties in strongly to the fact that our network forms hubs around ideas that it share, um, they see shared value in. One of those hubs is actually, as Lauren mentioned earlier, the network game hub. And this is a concept that was born out of, well, what are the ways that we can actually just kind of crack open the door to end of life discussions? Just enough and for just long enough that people will actually um, learn a little about themselves, about what they value, about what's important to them. And we thought, well, what about games? Like, what is the role of like, you know, getting, you know, school children sitting around playing a game all about end of life and uh, thinking about, you know, out of all their friends, who would be the best advocate, who knows them best. Um, and then, you know, taking that game home and playing it with their families uh, and opening these conversations in ways that are not terrifying and <laughs> not filled with fear but actually filled with lightheartedness and connection um, and really change I guess the the narrative around death and dying as being uh, something to be feared of and a taboo subject to talk about but actually making it something that is yeah just engaging and fun and playful and uh, at the same time giving people the vocabulary um, and the space they need to actually start considering some of the ways and things that they might want to happen um, when they're in the end of life space. Um, once you know those things, you know what you value, you can start creating um, creating or bringing those things to life. Mm. And it strikes me there's also a bit of demystifying to go on as well. And I think something that you shared with me, Ewan, was a video of a clinician talking about how we actually die and what is happening even just physiologically in the body, that the body is sort of softening and we come to just need to breathe less. And even to sort of just understand a bit about what is happening, it strikes me that there's a lot to learn and it, it makes a lot of sense that focus on education as a key lever across the system. I think this idea of convening might be something that is unfamiliar to some. 
what is a convening? What does it involve? What are the types of rituals and routines that you undertake? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as we've, as we've talked about, it's, it's been a really emergent uh, process, but we have been held by these monthly convenings, which we've had uh, continually since, I think, June 2019 until now. And every month we, we meet on a Zoom space. In the beginning, there was actually two spaces. We had a convening in person in, in South Australia in Adelaide in the taxi offices where we'd, um, you know, set out some, some drinks and some cheeses and actually get people around a table to just have discussions. But we also knew that there were many more people, you know, nationwide who had a lot to say about end of life and were uh, key change makers in this space. So we also hosted an online session and it was actually due to COVID last year that those two groups became one and it's been actually one of the most I guess um, you know it's changed the network for for the better because it's connected us across those um, barriers of space um, but in terms of rituals we, we try and um, lead every convening you know acknowledging the land we're, we're on and where we're coming from um, in Australia we always lead with a connection section, like Ewan said, um, you know, something that's about building our knowledge of each other as people instead of just um, focusing on, you know, if you go to a networking event, it might just be about like work and not who are you, but what do you do? Um, so we're always focusing on the who are you in this. And, you know, the the content of those monthly convenings are often, you know, can be very different. It could be the strategy of the network in one convening and then into another one we might be really focused on um you know developing some game prototypes or um you know doing a systems map um but we always end the same way in that we do uh, a chat waterfall which is asking everyone in the group to type into the zoom chat box where they feel like the network should be going next and what actions they feel like they should do um and it's through that um that part of the agenda that we build the emergence and understand actually what the group wants to be do to be led by the group rather than us setting a process or a direction. Um, and then we'll check out of the space together just so that we're leaving each other. Um, and, you know, we, we also have, um, we, we, we had a place where people could come and share challenges. We call this the peer input process. Um, or it's also a challenge clinic and we're moving into more terms around a, a hub accelerator, which is where people could bring um, a challenge they have in their space. You know, the last, the last person who did this um, has created an a incredible online personality called DD Diorite. And, you know, it's an it's a <laughs> incredible performance piece of just, um, you know, fun and play and exploring death in a different way. But she was she felt so vulnerable about putting that out there. She wanted the group to actually support her um, to understand, you know, if, if is this the right thing? Am I, am I being tone deaf? What am I missing? And by showing it to the group, she she sort of said, you know, I started out in this really small space, but then I just grew and grew and grew and it became this really big, amazing thing. Um, so that's another way we're trying to support people to come together and, and support each other in the network. And I wonder, Ewan, if there's particular people that you've drawn inspiration from, whether they're sort of network theorists, leaders, practitioners, or other types of practitioners. Start with a big shout out to June Holly. Um, mm -hmm. We have learned so much from 
the Network Weaver handbook and the Network Weaver website, um, which is based on work that June has done for many, many years uh, with many, many networks in the United States. And um, actually, we came we came to June's work a little late in the piece. It wasn't straight away. We had, I guess, pulled on a number of articles that we found in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. We had read a book called Connecting to Change the World. Um, remember the names of the authors on that one and there was a number of different things that kind of started coming together and I think for us the first cementing thing that we did was actually I guess theme everything that we had learned into uh, a poster which contained a series of activities that we felt were important to consistently do within our network and I guess, four-step governance framework, a series of mindsets, which um, we felt were really important for how we showed up and how we worked with each other in the network. And then, um, yeah, a a bunch of uh, things that we could do or align around. Uh, So I guess going from this kind of what works in the network, what mindsets do we need and what activities will we do together? Uh, but June's work has been amazing, and uh, recently we have connected with June, and we're going to be uh, yeah doing writing about this project for the Network Weaver website and blog, and uh, we've done a little video about um, closing triangles, which is uh, an activity where literally, if you identify a, a gap or a need or a diverse perspective that we don't have in the network and you're connected to someone with that perspective, you then seek to uh, understand where their passion or interest in the end of life space is and then connect them to someone else in the network uh, who might be interesting. So we're always trying to close these little triangles and form new sets of pairs who we then uh, can connect with other pairs and form hubs, um, which are groups of pairs working on or learning about uh, particular interest areas and those are all autonomous so they're not things that we sit in and manage um i guess the went back to the kind of organic metaphor from the beginning of our conversation we want to be diluting our role as conveners uh, over time and encouraging uh, i guess the spontaneous connection of others to work on things together and mm. do things together. And that feels very different to traditional project management, where we've got a project that we perhaps are actively trying to control, to keep on track, to manage time and manage budget. And this kind of emergent way of working that you're describing feels very rich, it feels very helpful, and it might even feel a little bit scary to some. And I wonder what advice you would have for folks who feel kind of unstable and out at sea with some of these ideas of working in such a, a sort of emergent way. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's something around, you know, the, the way that, um, you know, Western people work in the world around starting with the action and starting with the process. And I think in Tyson Yonker Porter's book, Sand Talk, he talks about, you know, always starting with direct and then at the end you go back, you go to the relationships because perhaps the direction at the beginning and the action didn't, didn't work. Um, whereas an Indigenous way of connecting is all about 
um, respect first, reflecting, um, and then go getting to action later, much, much later. Um, and I, I think, you know, people can feel lost in at sea when things go on a long time. We're, very, we're used to very short cycles, which is why we always go with direct because action and progress is seen as very good. But to go back to this natural metaphor, this idea of growing slowly is how this world has been built and how, you know, how systems are built over time. You know, they're, they're dynamic and changing things. And this is why they are so well complemented to each other. This is why networks work in systems because they are both moving dynamic things. So a moving system needs a moving ecosystem of response in a way. And I think, I think knowing that that is a, that is a response that you can, um, be a part of and just, you know, build the path as you go and know that there are other people on that journey. I think that brings you into a different space and into a different mindset. And actually you start behaving differently and connecting ideas differently. And I think, you know, being held in that space together with others is just, is just hugely supportive. It, it feels much more supportive than a traditional project management way of working. Yeah. I might just build on that. Just talking about the strength of relationships as being the, the number one factor in holding people in the discomfort of a new process, a new way of working. Uh, and secondary, having a shared purpose that is co-created that you can come back to. And we do come back to it at the start of every convening. Why are we doing this? Why are we sitting in this uncomfortable space? What is it that we collectively agreed and shaped that we want to achieve? And I think that's a really powerful thing to keep people uh, on the journey and on the path. And then the other thing that is useful is a set of principles uh, around how we're going to uh, be together. And just, you know, when you are in that space of total ambiguity, being able to anchor it into some principles that can just give you enough stability to take the next step forward. Um, I feel that they're, they're really they've really been important in the network. Mm. And if I'm understanding you correctly, Ewan, it sounds like you're suggesting that we have a shared purpose, but that we don't all have to do the same thing and we don't necessarily have to know all the things that everyone's doing. Absolutely. So in our early research around networks, one of the kind of light bulb moments was um, we don't need to be a coalition you know, where we have to have one perspective or one take on an idea in order to, um, I guess, leverage broader change in the system. We don't have to be a community of practice focused on one way of doing things. What if we were an organic ecosystem um, where we can take, um, I guess we can align ourselves to a shared challenge and we can take independent or like sometimes independent, sometimes collaborative actions towards that end goal. Um, I feel like that's such a critical component of being in a network that it's not all about doing the same thing at the same time to create change. It's about using a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of approaches to meet a diversity of needs. Um, there is no such thing as like uh, a silver bullet that's going to solve end of life problems. So why would we try and create one? Uh, and I think that's 
part of the, the the real value of working in a networked way as opposed to an institutional or a traditional organizational setting. I don't think you can really do this kind of work um, in in those environments necessarily. Mm. And it feels like it's a way of meeting the world as it is, not as we'd like it to be as a, you know, reduced and controllable type of thing. I wonder if, to wrap up the conversation, we could hear a bit about the designer that you were before you started working in networks and the designer that you are now. Wow, what a wonderful thing to think about. I think um, when I started this type of work, I was very much focused on design and innovation and, and research and working with people but in short spurts and, and cycles and um, that was a way that was very comfortable because you're never never really there long enough to see the change but you're sort of um, learning about it and um, talking to different people about it um, and, and I guess that, that feels like it has momentum um, but it's actually it's, it's not really momentum, it's a bit of a lie um, and I'm not saying that that's not good work because it is good work and it supports the long-term work that we do. I think starting this network, um, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> I had no idea what we were getting into. It was it was a lot of like you and I just fumbling in, in the dark a lot of the time um, and, and, yeah, and laying those stones as we go. And, and I think now, um, I think now when I, when I come into a group of people or when I am part of a convening, it's much easier to see um, that my process and my way of doing things is part of a system and it's part of my way of doing things and that's involved by my lived experiences. Um, but in a group of people where everyone has that as well, it's, it's a sort of a really complex space and it's all, um, it's all anchored on this idea of, you know, complex reciprocity, which, you know, June Holly goes into and talks about as this idea of you're giving and taking, but often not from the same person. Um, so it's not transactional. It's not this idea of you get this, I get this. It's it's this idea of I give my what I can to the network for the for the benefit of this this ecosystem, and I know I will get repaid in some way, in some form, and it's not going to be that transactional thing. So that's probably where I'm at now. For myself, I think I was very process orientated, so. Um, you know, as a designer, I was, there's process and process has, uh, you know, performative function, which gets us from A to B. And, uh, I think what I've learned through the experience of working in networks is the need to work with emergence, um, rather than commanding and controlling something, really letting it emerge and unfold and giving to the situation, what the situation is asking for. But that means you've got to really listen. You've got to listen to um, who's in the space, what they're saying, and join dots that um, uh, not only you have to join the dots, you have to support them to join the dots. You have to uh, support others to lead in the space. You have to uh, show everyone that they are a leader um, and give them the tools that they can then also identify other leaders. And um, so it's all about, I guess, moving from a 
I'll stand up the front as the practitioner and lead people through a process to I will um, stand in the background and give people the tools that they can also stand in the background so that we're constantly looking out for ourselves and looking out for other people all at the same time and encouraging people to take ownership and take the lead um, and then giving them the tools that they need or helping them understand how to get those tools for themselves. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Um, a huge thank you, Lauren and Ewan, for our conversation today. It's been really energizing and exciting to see how many different ways of doing things there is and what is possible when we slow down, when we focus on relationships and when we work in a, a more emergent way than perhaps many of us are used to who have those very process-driven, short time frame design backgrounds. Uh, I wonder if there's folks who have been listening to this conversation and who would like to explore the end of life space more or to understand a bit more about that I wonder if you and you could kick us off with a resource, a, a book, a video, something that people could watch or listen to. So we have just started really communicating our journey. I think we've been so focused on learning um, that we haven't done a vast amount of communicating around our project in particular. We have just posted uh, um, uh, our first article on the taxi website which is taxi.org.au and uh, within that we've curated a list of the materials that really informed our approach at the end of that article and we have also embedded a video and some uh, hopefully useful uh, descriptions of the activities that we do and um, so i think that's a, probably a good starting off point for anyone who's interested yeah, I, I concur with you. And I think, you know, that, that article um, was a really uh, key piece of work that helped us pull together this last two years and um, it, like everything that we've learned from um, the members of the network. Um, and, you know, I think that there's still a long way to go for us, um, you know, that we've got these five more years of funding and, um I think we'll continue understanding like what that means for um, the folks in the network and yeah, what it means to weave these networks together. Fantastic. And for anyone who's been trying to capture some of the books, the people, the resources, we'll put all of those things in the show notes so that you can browse them at your leisure. But again, thank you so much, Lauren and Ewan for joining us. Thanks, Killian. Thanks for listening to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com. You can sign up to the community newsletter, learn about upcoming online community gatherings, or join the Slack channel where you can connect with thousands of other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and see you next time.